All right. So, uh, TK, I need to tell you why you're wrong, buddy. Um, <laughs> that's the best way to open a conversation. Let me tell you why you're wrong. No, I'm not really. I'm going to play a little devil's advocate. So you had a tweet earlier this week and you just get comfortable. Cause I might have to do a fair bit of setup here before I let you talk. <laughs> yeah. and, and, and by the way, we should, we should read my post because that tweet was part of a tweet storm. So we should probably read my, my Facebook post that, that fleshed out that thought. It's a little Why bit. Why would I do that? All I saw was the one tweet and that's all I want to talk about. I don't right. want to read the rest of it. Well, your audience might enjoy it. I know you're very impatient <laughs> and don't want to hear it, but your oh, audience might appreciate having our content. audience, TK. <laughs> okay, so here's what I saw. Here's what I saw. Yeah. And I liked the tweet. I'll tell you why I liked it. But you had a tweet that was like, you know, uh, free market advocates or something say, you know, businesses should be free. To- Let's just read that tweet. Let's okay. just read the tweet. Okay, go ahead. Read it. Capitalism. I was going to do a better job paraphrasing it, but go ahead. I guess we can. No, never, never. The tweet will be less accurate than my characterization, but go ahead. <laughs> never, never. Uh, the tweet says, capitalists, free markets are great. They can resolve conflicts so much better than big government, private companies. Dear black people, we don't want to offend you. So we're going to remove some words and images that might anger you. Capitalists, no, you guys are letting big government liberals win. Okay, so I like the tweet because I get the general sentiment of, you know, <clears throat> people being, um, people being like free market advocates being like afraid of the free market. Like I, it always annoys me. I, I get a little annoyed when people talk about, they get so angry and fearful about, you know, deplatforming or whatever. And, and the reason I don't like it is because it, immediately comes from a victim standpoint. Like, oh, well, these companies are doing this and this and I'm suffering at the hands of this company. And it's like, bro, nobody's making you use their service or product. Nobody's making you suffer at the hands of this company. Like, don't put yourself in the victim seat. They're making a choice, you're making a choice, The the victim mentality not even supposed to exist amongst capitalists, right? Isn't Isn't that the conceptual property of the left? From what I understand, yeah, right. Like so, the so, and, and the word capitalist. I don't, I don't think anybody is like the word is so abused now. But I know what you mean. You mean people who are advocating for a free market. Yeah. So I get that. I don't like that victim mentality where you just like complain, complain about. Oh no! So I liked the tweet because I was going to give you charitable interpretation. But now I'm going to play devil's advocate. Now I'm going to tell you why your attempt to point out hypocrisy was in fact hypocritical. And, and, and then I'll, I'll defend my position, of course. Uh-huh. Hypocrite. <laughs> um, so look, I don't see any free market advocates saying, oh, government ought to stop, you know, ought to stop companies from trying to appease liberal activists or whatever it might be. I don't see anyone saying that. And so this idea, and I hate it when people who hate free markets do this, when people who think regulation is necessary – They'll say, you know, if somebody says, oh, I think that, I, I, you know, here, I'll give you an example. I think it's a really silly idea that YouTube, silly and frankly, a little bit frightening, that YouTube said, we're going to ban any video that talks about coronavirus that doesn't say exactly what the ridiculously stupid, ignorant, corrupt World Health Organization says. We're going to remove those videos. And I publicly said, like, that's weird and frankly, kind of creepy and disturbing. Now, you get some 
government loving goofball who's like, but I thought you liked free markets. YouTube can do what they want. And I'm like, yes. And that's what you were doing. Yes. They can do whatever they want. And I can do whatever I want as a consumer. I can say, I don't like that. I don't want them to do that. If, if I'm going to keep consuming their product. And as a, a, a person with an opinion who likes to talk in the you know, court of public opinion, I can certainly say, man, I think that's like, frankly, a, a bad long-term business move just in terms of business strategy, which is fun to talk about. Hmm, I think YouTube's going to end up paying for that in the long term. And as like a cultural commentary, that's kind of a depressing sign to me. I think that's a bad sign that maybe cultural discussion and discovery of information has reached a place where it's too offensive to too many people. And so now you got all these companies who are scared. They're playing defense. They've basically, when I see that, I criticize it because to me, that's a company admitting defeat. That's a company admitting we are no longer in charge of our own destiny. We have given up on being an innovator in the world. And we have said, okay, world, tell us how to make you not hate us. And I see that as the beginnings of the end for a company being a real force, an independent entity that's going out and doing cool stuff. That's a strategic and cultural critique that is 100%, 100% within the range of free market discourse. There is nothing hypocritical about a free market advocate saying, why the hell are all these companies that have nothing to do with coronavirus posting giant COVID pop-ups on the top of their website with their COVID information page? Like, you know what I mean? Like, that's a valid criticism. There's nothing in there that's anti-free market. So why are you being so hypocritical trying to call out? <laughs> um, so, so first, I, I should say that I'm absolutely on board with using the power of the free market to make critiques of business practices. 100% on board. You know, um, the beauty of the free market is that we get to make our own choices and we also get to be snobs about it and still harmoniously coexist, right? You know, I mean, if you look at, uh, if you look at music or you look at health, we're all self-righteous snobs about these things. We, consumers, <laughs> consumers are divas. They're horribly yeah. spoiled. I mean, this, this guy right here, Ludwig von Mises, my, my beer mug, he said in, in, cap, in a true capitalist free market society, consumers are kings. Consumers are masters and companies slavishly serve them. And consumers are like, pretty demanding and ungrateful. And that's one of the great things about it. Yeah. And we're not just demanding and ungrateful, like acting like entitled whiny brats to the service providers quite often, but we're also very snobbish and self-righteous about the decisions that other consumers make. Right. Um, we're, we're not just content to enjoy the kind of music we listen to. We must condemn people who enjoy different kinds. We're not just content to say, this is the way I like to work out, or this is what's healthiest to me. Uh, we're very religious about it. And, and, and we're, we're very accusatory towards people who, you know, <clears throat> are healthy in a different way. But the beauty of the market is that without praising human behavior, which is often very flawed, often easy to condemn and, 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 and critique, um, we celebrate the, the mechanism by which disputes are resolved and by which conflicts are managed. And one mistake that critics of free markets and proponents of free markets alike make is they assume that being a champion of free markets requires you to believe that the solutions generated by markets are optimal or that they're perfect. No, oftentimes the, the, the best available solution on a free market is absolutely terrible, um, but it's the best available solution when you ask compared to what, right? Um, 
the mistake that most people make in discussions on economics is they take any failing of the free market as an automatic argument that we need to introduce central planning to resolve it. So I'm, I'm speaking from the context of sitting back as an observer and I'm watching a real time market refutation of the dominant socialist premise that comes up every single time you, I, or anyone else who talks about free markets, when we talk to people that are interested or thinking about the ideas, the dominant question is, yeah, but if you introduce a profit motive to that, wouldn't that make perverse incentives that causes people to just kind of screw over the poor? Or, you know, if people are unhappy and unsatisfied, you know, wouldn't markets just make people give, you know, give them the middle finger and say, yeah, like, like, like without, without governments, you know, businesses would just refuse to sell anything to minorities because, you know, whatever, that's what capitalism does or something like that. And, and so, so you're, yeah, and, and, and by the way, a good example of this really quickly, like if you think about like Jim Crow era, right? Um, there, there are people who make this argument. What they will say is, you know, if it wasn't for the government, you know, like the government is the hero, even though this was an age of government sponsored violence, somehow well, like the government- The whole reason Jim Crow laws came yes. about was because yes. businesses weren't racist enough to satisfy the racists who were in control of government. And so they said to those businesses, it is illegal for you to let black people and white people, you know, sit together or have the same places. Like, yeah, so the, it's not the market that's the, okay, so, so, so go ahead, go ahead, go ahead, finish your point. Because I, th yeah, I think it, I get where you're coming from with this tweet, but go ahead. Yeah, and, and, so, and so people like to say, and it's very hard to argue against because what you're really arguing against is not an actual argument. You're arguing against people's inability to imagine how great markets are at resolving yeah. problems. And that's, that's really difficult to win. But you look at things like Jim Crow, like most people just make the assumption that if there are a bunch of racists who run businesses, that these racists will allow their own racism to keep them from caring about the concerns of black people, that that is somehow sustainable without having you know, a government artificially insulate you from competition. But in an environment of competition, in an environment where customers are free to compete, free to choose, free to collaborate, free to opt in and out of systems at their own will, that kind of behavior is very expensive and it's extremely difficult to sustain. And a lot of people paint the picture of like historical evolution as a story of like white enlightenment, right? There was a point where like white people were racist and then one day white people got enlightened and then white people were like, hey man, because we're enlightened and, and also partially government, we got good people in government, we're gonna stop all this racist nonsense. And the real story of, of progress is one in which there was there were always still like a ton of racists who didn't want black people consuming, but it was so expensive, you just couldn't stop them. Like the world didn't celebrate Jackie Robinson. He still received death threats. There were still lots of racists in the league, but the market compelled people. It's not just an invisible hand. The power the market of market compels hand. you. <laughs> yeah, man, like the market is not just an invisible hand, it's an iron hand, right? Like it comes down really hard really hard on things like bigotry and so forth. So, I love, so, by the way, as a, as a related note, a little rabbit trail, but you said history is presented as if it's the history of white people uh, becoming more kind or enlightened or whatever. I don't remember how you put it, but it reminds me, I was just listening to Thaddeus Russell and Hotep Jesus uh, on a podcast, which was a fascinating podcast. And uh, Hotep Jesus said something to the effect of like, 
stop, stop. He'd like his message to his black listeners is stop putting white people in the center. If you act like they're the problem and they're the solution, then it's always, you're always basically subject to the power of white people. And that's, that's part of the, the problem with that message. I mean, not only is it untrue historically and, and economically, but that it's kind of a disempowering message. It's like, hey, look, the story of history is white people basically learning to be better people. And to keep moving forward, we have to just keep convincing white people to be better people. And there's something, you know, whether or not that's true, the idea of like convincing or creating new laws, and it's all about white people finally doing the right thing and nobody else is able to like progress until that happens. And, you know, I, I just think I like changing the narrative to say, hey, how about, you know, uh, we go out as individuals in the market and make it so that anybody who wants to treat me like crap because they're racist, they're just going to suffer economically. They're going to lose from it, right? Like, let's, let's let, you know, people's regard to their own self-interest cause them to either get on board or lose out. You know what I mean? It's, it's more empowering. It puts the locus of control back in the individual. But that's just a, an aside. Yeah, so, so here's where I think people who um, are advocates of free markets or claim to be at least, tend to get their sales pitch wrong. Um, I, I actually think that many advocates of free markets are, are terrible at, at marketing the idea. And you know, they, they, they may be very principled, that they may, they may have their thinking around it really clean, but th there are these moments, and I think right now is, is one such moment, where there's such a fear of like <clears throat> liberals winning. There's such a fear over the culture war that moments of success are clearly missed out on and your most powerful selling point is something that you yourself are overlooking. So I'll go ahead, go ahead. Okay, so thank you for explaining to me why I liked the tweet. I went ahead and liked it preemptively, waiting for you to explain to me why I should like it, but now you have satisfied that. So let me rephrase. I don't think, as I first read it, Besides my, well, as I said earlier, the charitable interpretation that like it's anti-victim mentality or whatever, but you're not so much calling out a, a hypocrisy in philosophy or in logic. It's not hypocrisy that you're calling out by saying, oh, you're not allowed to say free markets should be okay and then criticize free markets. That's not the point. What you're doing is pointing out a missed opportunity. You're pointing out a missed opportunity that free market advocates have. Here they are trying to convince the world that free markets and letting people choose to do what they want to do is not going to lead to horrible outcomes. And this is something that's, that's a good thing. And then when, when companies in the market, I shouldn't say entirely free, but in, in the market, they're not compelled by government in this case, do something that is largely popular instead of saying, hey, here, this is an example. Nobody passed a law that made these companies respond to this social movement. They did it because they're seeking profit. Now you can agree or disagree with the movement, but it proves the point that companies are highly responsive. They're going to be responsive the next day, whereas governments are going to form some commission and spend six months on CNN doing some crazy stuff and introducing some resolution. Look at how responsive the market is. And, and nobody, very few market advocates seize that opportunity to say, look, this is proof, guys. The market is not your enemy. It's, it's scared of you in a good way. It's scared of you in, in you as consumers. It doesn't want to lose business 
Companies don't want to lose your business. Look how responsive they are. Very few people are doing that. Instead, they're like, oh my God, these companies are immediately kowtowing. That's terrible. I'm scared. And, and you see that as universally problematic or is there a little bit of truth in that fear? We'll put it this way. Is there anything about the cultural moment that you think makes it, okay, I'm going to use a Michael Jordan story. This will help. This will help you connect to my point better. There's a part in the last dance, which I love. I just, just so people know, just so people know you're, you're not being racist. It's not like you're using a basketball example because like, you know, I'm going to use a basketball example for this brother. We, we are, Michael Jordan is our oh. go-to. I got to put this in context. So, okay, I forgot. I don't want anybody to accuse me of racism. Like, hey, you're a black guy. How about we talk about basketball? Uh, TK and I have a long history of NBA analogies, and I'm pretty sure TK, the highest level of truths for him all come through NBA analogies. Uh, below that, maybe it's like, I don't know, uh, boys to men analogies, <laughs> WWE. Bitcoin. Yeah, if you use Michael Jordan or Hulk Hogan, you can pretty much get me anywhere. Okay, so, that, so this is what I want to ask you about. Because I get your point. It's very well taken. Like, what a missed opportunity to point out the beauty of markets and their adaptability to, you know, cultural phenomena, et cetera, and then the demands of consumers. Do you think there is, in the current moment, <clears throat> something to be concerned about when you see companies almost self-flagellating, in a way, or going, bending over backwards to become activists? There's something beautiful about the market being anonymous and being impersonal in some ways. There's something very safe and civilizing about that. So like when I go to buy food at the store, I don't need to ask the person in the back room who's preparing the food or putting the boxes on the shelf if he has the same religion as me, or if he likes the same sports team as me, or if he believes the same cosmology as I do. And that's good. He's anonymous to me, and we can both benefit from exchange, even though we might hate each other in personal life. There's something about that that I think is really humanizing, and it reduces the level of conflict in the world and draws people together. And in The Last Dance, there's, a, there's an era of Michael Jordan was really, really pressured to weigh in on a political campaign in North Carolina. And he was like, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to involve that. He's never gotten publicly involved, to my knowledge, with any kind of political stuff. And he was like, his answer, which has gotten him a ton of criticism was, look, Republicans buy sneakers too. And people interpreted that you've sold your soul so that you won't get people mad and they'll stop buying your product. I interpret that as like, that's actually the beautiful thing about markets is like, even if you think you hate me, you can be making me better off by buying my stuff. Like, and even if I find you insufferable, I can be made better off by selling you my stuff. That is a humanizing force that reduces conflict. When you have this litmus test that in order to sell a product in the market, you can't be anonymous. You can't just say, here's my products. These tomatoes are beautiful and ripe. Buy them. You have to come out publicly in front of everybody and say, here's who I am. Here's my backstory. Here's all the things I believe. Here's all the people I think are bad and all the people I think are good. And then everybody has to judge you before they decide whether to buy your tomatoes. There's something about that that I think is a little frightening, that I think is a little dangerous, and especially when it starts to involve threats of lawsuits and threats of doxing people and trying to you know, get publicly uh, make people go and whatever, picket their house. There's something about that that's not just, hey, cool, the market you know, wants companies to stand up for certain causes that becomes... 
you can see where it's going. It's going, it's going in the madness of crowds direction, potentially, because history has shown that is a possibility that actually does happen. And, and it feels a little scary in that regard. Would you agree that there's a risk there or a threat? Yeah, and, and, and it, it, it makes me even more excited about the market because we're dealing with extremes right now. This is a lot bigger than the market signaling to Miley Cyrus fans that they want to satisfy them while looking Isaac Morehouse in the face and saying, we don't care about you, dude. We don't care about you, right? Like, like we know that's what Disney's doing. When, when they advertise that Hannah Montana special, they're looking at you and me and they're saying, I don't care what you guys think. I'm signaling for my people over here. But that really doesn't offend us because we don't have any baggage over that. You know, we don't, we don't have any emotional or historical baggage over that. But when it comes to issues of race, there's a lot going on in the country right now where there are some emotional disagreements and black people and white people have a lot of emotional historical baggage over this discussion, right? And so this would be a great example of the exact kind of problem that a market should not be able to resolve. Like th this would be the perfect example for that person to be like, you know what? We need government to do something about this one because we know that if there's one thing America ain't gonna agree about, it's this race thing. We know one thing black people and white people, excuse me for being pessimistic on this, that whole dream of everybody holding their hands and being like, hey, we just one race, sorry, that ain't happening in my lifetime. If there's any issue we gonna disagree about that's gonna bring up a lot of emotion, we're witnessing the evidence of that fact right now. And while government is trying to figure out, uh, what do we do, making everybody mad, the market is working so hard, so fast to try every freaking thing that it can. And I think that some people are misunderstanding is that this isn't like you can just draw down the line like a left versus right battle. There are black people who are looking at these signals and saying, I'm not impressed. I think that's fake. You take the Aunt Jemima thing, there are black people that are saying, hey, y'all, we accused y'all of being racist years ago. And now because, you know, there's a bunch of heat going on, now you want to tell us that you're going to pull Aunt Jemima from the shelves? We're not impressed. And, and these businesses have to adapt to that. So when people say, oh, it's just a bunch of cheap virtue signaling, I think a lot of these people just really don't know how hard it is through their own personal experience, how to like win and keep customers. Because virtue signaling <laughs> is exceptionally difficult to do, first of all, at, at least to be able well, to, to do in a way that that makes a dent. Like right, if right, it was right. if it was easy to win customers by just tweeting out slogans, like everybody yeah. be rich, right? <laughs> yeah, like you, you can't like. I describe capitalism as one big profit based virtue signaling system. Because if we just look at it for what it really what, what it really means. And, and, and let me let me. Why, why would I, I get, I understand what people mean by the negative connotation of virtue signaling. They mean, they mean yeah. you want, you want to do something really easy that makes people think well of you. Um, that covers the fact that you actually are not a good person specifically in the way that you want them to think you're a good person. I get right. that. When they say virtue signaling, they mean something that is inherently low cost. Yeah, exactly. I understand that. But if we think about what those two words mean together, signaling, which is a, a well-studied and powerful concept in economics, right? It's the, it's the reason banks put marble floors and expensive buildings up historically to, to signal to you, I've invested a ton of capital. That means I'm not going to take your deposit and run away like some early banks in the, in the, you know, the, the crazy early banking uh, frontier era were known to do. And so it was a way of signaling to you and signaling to be effective has to be costly. It has to be something that you couldn't do 
easily. You couldn't do unless you were serious about your claims. Hey, your money is safe here. How do I know? Look at how much money we've poured into this thing. You think we're going to abandon this building that cost us more than, you know, whatever. And then virtue. What is virtue? It's, it's being a good person, right? So what are companies trying to do? They're trying to virtue signal. They're trying to, they're trying to spend a lot of resources and costly doesn't just mean money because money is almost the easiest way to signal. If you're a big company, you got to find a way to signal that's hard to fake that you can't yes. fake if it's not true, that you can't forge. And so a good signal is one that you can't, you can't pretend that that thing is true of you and have it not be true. And which is why I think like virtue signaling online is, is so ineffective. People criticize right. it, but I don't think anybody's fooled by it. I don't think right. most people are fooled by it. When you just do a hashtag, they don't think, wow, you must be a really great person because that yeah. was very costly for you to do. So I think companies are always they're always looking to genuinely prove to convince you of their virtue. And to do that, they've got to signal it in a costly, hard to replicate way that somebody who was lying couldn't do. That's the game to constantly try to do something that could only be done by somebody who wasn't lying, who could back it up. And that's a constant process of trying to discover that. And that's the final thing I want to say. I don't mean to keep interrupting you on these, on these rants, but that when you're saying the market is, is a beautiful thing, it's not, you're not saying whatever the market's doing right now, this minute is good. Like Airbnb or whatever, whoever, Amazon, whatever they're doing in response to Black Lives Matter is good. You're saying the process, the dynamic discovery process of the market is good. And each, each individual company, they're going to try stuff and they may fail or they may win. They may piss off white customers. They may piss off black customers. They may piss off everybody. They may have different results. But the process of discovering what's the best way to uh, signal virtue and then back it up with, with how you actually interact with customers, that process is actually a beautiful thing. Yeah, you, you have to appreciate the mechanism, not the moment that we're in right now, right? Because the moment that we're in right now is confusing, it's stressful, it's overwhelming, it's, it's annoying. Uh, but the mechanism at work, we're, we're still in the middle of the game, so to speak. And I don't believe that businesses have gotten it right because the negative feedback that people are giving, it's part of the process of discovery. You know, rarely do you get capitalist virtue signaling correct the first few times around. It, it is a process. One other thing I think is important on this topic though, and you don't see it being done a lot in, in, in the discussions happening today is, man, you've got to do so much parceling out. You've got to make so many important distinctions in order to make a statement today. I'm gonna give you an example. Let's take like protests, riots, and looting, right? Uh, pro you, know, you, you can stand for one thing and support one thing or be okay with one thing and condemn something else, right? But there's so many people that have a difficult time just not conflating those things, right? Um, and it can be hard for people to think about these things with nuance, but it's, it's really easy to say, I support protests. I support protests. I think it's good when people are passionate about something, they get together and they use their voice to try to bring awareness and generate conversations around the causes that they're fighting for. I don't support looting, period, right? Like it's possible to do that. Now, just because you support one thing doesn't mean you are committed to supporting all the other things. It's similar with the virtue signaling that businesses are doing. One, you don't need to support every particular business's approach to this in order to, to, to respect 
what the market is compelling them to figure out how to get right. But also, there's a lot of diversity with what businesses are doing. It's not all about people hanging up a sign that says we support Black Lives Matter. I'm gonna give you one example because I'm starting to collect these because people are like objecting to it so much and they're having so much trouble with what I'm saying. I'm starting to collect good examples and, and it's really easy. So here's one that I just came across in the last hour. This is from Uber Eats. And this was a tweet, a friend of mine shared this with me. You asked for a way to find black owned restaurants on Uber Eats, we listened. You can support an order from black owned restaurants across the US and Canada with a $0 delivery fee. See app for terms and availability. Now, you should go read the comments from my Facebook post. Let me guess, let me guess. Number one comment goes like this. <laughs> can you imagine if they said you can find white owned businesses, right? <laughs> so I, I didn't post that, that tweet, but like on the, the Facebook post that I, the, that I fleshed out my- Oh, just the more general one, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, there's a lot of stuff like that where people are like, yeah, but they're, but they're doing it out of fear. That's, that's not a respectable thing. They're just doing it because they're afraid. They're afraid of the angry mob. And, and here's the first thing I want to say about that. What's true of, this is also true of individuals. There are people in businesses that act out of faith and there are people in, in businesses that act out of fear, okay? And we have the right to be as snobbish as we want to about this. Um, if we want to roll our eyes at people who make decisions out of fear, <clears throat> we can do that. There are certainly people that go to work every day and the way they talk to their coworkers, the way they talk to their employers and their customers, it's entirely based on fear. They're just afraid of getting fired, afraid of getting yelled at, whatever it may be. There's a lot of people like that. In fact, they're called, I would they're say called that, HR, HR people. <laughs> and businesses do it too. And I don't know where Uber was coming from with that. I'm totally open to the fact that Uber might be doing that out of fear. And I would actually say, if they are being in fear, that's an even, even stronger argument for the market. That's an even bigger slam dunk for the market. Because if we knew they were virtuous, that would weaken my argument significantly because it would support the socialist who says, yeah, but that's only because the CEO of Uber is black or his wife is black and he's always been supportive of black folks for the last 20 years, but you can't always get that. That's not the kind of system I want. I want the kind of system that compels businesses to work out the difficult problem of figuring out how they're gonna make their customers happy in spite of the fact that they don't like them. And it's, it's interesting to me how we've got so much baggage about this race thing. I think we've got so much baggage with this that we can't appreciate it here. It's so hard for us to appreciate it because we, we, we just don't like Uber doing that. If Uber had done that for something else, nobody would care, it'd just be the market. But we've got so much baggage around this topic. And, and I, I think a lot of it has well, to do I with think. <clears throat> I th well, maybe it is only race. I'm trying to think of other examples. Well, so I don't like think it's the only thing. I don't, th I don't think it's only that. I don't if think it's said, um, hey, we now have the ability to search for veteran-owned businesses. Uh, I, think, I don't think anybody would get upset by that. Um, almost anything else, I think people would. Uh, uh, like female-owned businesses, maybe not. Uh, Asian-owned businesses, Mexican-owned businesses whatever, I think people probably would. Um, it just gets, it just gets, it gets, you're right. I mean, it gets messy. A, a, a business deciding to offer consumers some new level of choice 
or to signal to consumers some cause that they care about, it gets really, really dangerous when race is involved more than anything else. And of course, right now, more than, you know, more than even um, other times, but yeah, that definitely makes people have a harder time seeing free market. People have a harder time seeing the underlying principle. Like what is, what is wrong with a business saying here, you can browse companies by more options, including the race of the owner. Uh, and I think that's not without justification though. Or it's not, at least it's not like if I'm going to play, if I'm going to be as charitable as possible, I think people get crazy about it, but there's, again, there's something there that I think people are sniffing out that is worth being wary of, which is like, okay, so do we get to a world where it's like, I want to go buy a product and first I have to check like the race, gender, religion, whatever of every single service provider. And every time I want to go sell a product, I know that we're in a marketplace where like, I have to first like sign all these creeds of beliefs and say that I, that I believe whatever the dominant cultural belief is or whatever it, you know what I mean? Like, cause I think it's not just that it's not just about serving your customer. It's also that there's only one form of serving your customer that I think is culturally and politically viable. Like if, if a company were to say, okay, well, I'm not worried about, I'm not worried about people who care about Black Lives Matter. I'm going to make a business that says, we only sell you stuff from people who don't like Black Lives Matter. That would not be a viable option, right? And so I think people start to see litmus tests, purity tests, tests of you must first sign a confession of faith before you're allowed to do commerce in the marketplace. And whether that's a legal doctrine or a cultural expectation, the one tends to lead to the other pretty quickly if you have a, a big enough you know, voice behind it. And so I think people are kind of projecting into the future and they're seeing you know, they're seeing in the most extreme cases, oh, we got to make Jews wear a star, right? We got to break people down and identify them by race, by belief system. And we got to say who's allowed to do what. I think that's what scares people. Yeah. Allay that fear for somebody. Why, why, is, that, why is that not troubling? Or, or, you know, why ought it not to be troubling? And may, maybe it is as long as government's as big as it is because they can come bring the hammer down. But let's say in, in a perfectly free market, um, I'm not scared by it, uh, but I want to hear your your take. What do you say to people who say they are scared by it? Yeah, so you're not scared because you actually understand how markets work. Um, and and this is why my my write up was kind of like a a challenge to capitalists, right? It, it wasn't it wasn't a statement to the rest of the world. It was a challenge to capitalists about the missed opportunity to educate the broader world about the power of free markets and and. If you understand how markets work, there's no way you can look at what's going on right now and think that this version of virtue signaling is effective and sustainable. There's no way you can convince yourself of that right now. You do not have to worry. You do not have to worry about this lasting lo longer than like two years. Purely from like a purely from like a website real estate space between the uh, what are those European GPDR where they're like warning this website you know whatever has tracking links or whatever and then covid warnings 
and then support for BLM. There's literally no real estate left on these websites to like show whatever their content is. I couldn't even find how to look for houses on Airbnb because it was like, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so it's yeah. not sustainable visually, if nothing else. I don't know how many more causes you can fit on a single homepage. Yep. Yep. So, so, so th there are a couple of things that we're seeing right now in real time that convince me that, that, that what's happening right now is, is, is being continually refined. Number one, there's a lot of negative feedback. There's th th these companies are not doing this without criticism. So they're going to have to adapt and adjust. That's the first thing. The second thing is what's hot in the media is going to change. The media is going to get tired really quickly of this being the issue and they're going to move on to something else that's just how the media cycle works even if the problem is real and remains the same the media will move on to something different the third thing is anytime you do something in business that works other people copy you so even if this is working other people are going to copy it and the moment people start to copy it it becomes an inflated signal it begins to lose its value why does innovation always get driven upward in a free market because once people copy it, the market for signaling in some overt, explicit way, we love black people, that becomes cheap, and not even black people believe you anymore. And so now you've got to get creative. You've got to find out how to not spell it out, because all of the competition has reduced that to mere pandering, and it's already happening. And you've got to say, well, how can I not say that, but, but signal to everybody that we love you all equally in a way that's you know, more creative, and in a, in a way that ain't making all the white people mad too, and in a way that you get better. The market works that out. So I would say for those of you who are like super afraid, you know, believe what you've been preaching to people. When they tell you, but uh, when you introduce the profit incentive and businesses do things for money, isn't that, doesn't that mean they're gonna screw people over? Now you're just doing that for white people and conservatives. Basically, you're making the same objection socialists have been making, and you're like, but if we just allow the market to do things out of fear, uh, isn't that gonna result in a world where nobody respects white people or nobody respects conservative values? No, they can't afford that. Let the market have its way. But here's the second thing. Okay, go ahead. Go ahead. Here's the second thing. And this is directed to the capitalists again. This is an ongoing battle, right? So if you are interested in trying to popularize free markets, you've got three demographics of people out there. One, you have allies, people that already agree with the philosophy of free markets. You already got them. You can talk inside baseball to them. Two, you have, I'll call them enemies, people that ain't interested in sitting down and talking with you. They wanna take away your private property. They wanna take away your private rights. Hey man, your property rights, there are people out there that you can't negotiate with them. We'll call them the opponents, the enemies, whatever. You're not never gonna win them. You, you just gotta fight them, resist them, whatever. The third group are people that are on the fence. People that, you know, they're watching things, they're kind of open, but they, they're not convinced, and you know, they have questions. And by the way, when, when cultural shifts are happening, these shifts usually happen because a large, relatively uninformed majority choose, chooses to go along with a small but very loud group who has the most powerful and persuasive rhetoric. That's usually how it happens. So an example of this would be like consumer advocacy laws. We know that consumer advocacy laws actually hurt consumers because they artificially restrict competition. But the small, loud group who pushes for consumer advocacy laws they present their case in a way that makes the average consumer listen to it and feel like that sounds pretty good that sounds like pretty harmless yeah i think that's good that you know barbershops should be required to 
keep their places clean and have certain a certain amount of hair clippers in place and you know everybody should get licenses and have to take classes yeah that sounds pretty good and it's not that the majority of people are like pro you know these you know government licensing regulations or whatever they're just regular people who listen to the rhetoric and say hey that sounds pretty harmless and fair to me and so, somebody does a good job of selling the theoretical outcome Hey, if we have yeah. these laws, this is what we'll have. Nice, clean barbershops. And people say, oh, I like nice, clean barbershops. And the people who are advocating free markets, you know, for one, they don't feel like they need to sell that because if it already exists. But two, it's like they're not going around saying, hey, if you just allow markets to operate, we will have much nicer, cleaner barbershops. Oh, and we'll have a more variety of services, lower prices, blah, blah, blah. Uh, they usually are not proactively making that claim. They're just kind of like, hey, markets should be free. You know what I mean? Like they're not, yeah. they're not selling you on a specific vision. And, that, and it's, a, it's an unfair challenge, granted, because yeah, for sure. if you're pro-free market, you can't sell a specific vision of what the market's going to produce. You're going to be like, oh, well, the market will produce stuff that we can't even imagine yet. And you're like, well, I can't imagine that. Why would I advocate something I can't imagine? You know what I mean? Yeah, be, being pro-free pro, pro market, it, it, it's almost like this unfair message of, just leave everything alone. <laughs> well, and that's and that's where and that's where it can go wrong too, right? The idea that if you fall into like efficient market hypothesis myth, right, where you're like, sure. oh well, the market will solve everything, which is actually true compared to the alternative, right? Compared right. to using violence, nonviolence, a free market will solve things better than that. But we don't know what those solutions will look like. It doesn't mean things are going to be perfect, and it certainly doesn't mean that part of the market process does not include criticism of the actions and strategies taken within that market. So how would you recommend, okay. what, is, what is a better way to constructively criticize areas yeah. where you think actors in the market are going wrong? And we're not talking about trying to get the state involved, just purely participating in that market process and trying to direct it in a way that you want. Well, well so first I think most capitalists and most conservatives are already doing that. They're, they're doing a phenomenal job at being loud, angry, and upset at the way the market is signaling things that they don't like. No, well, nobody they're doing ever, it. I don't know if I would call it a phenomenal job. Well, okay, a phenomenal job of being loud and angry, yes. Yeah, and, and that's all they need <laughs> to be. Not effective necessarily and, and useful and productive, but. Well, 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 it's not like the other side is doing much, but being like loud and angry too, right? Like, yeah, like the, for sure. Yeah. Yeah, I think businesses respond to, to loud and angry and, and dissatisfaction. So they don't need me to coach them up on how to be loud and angry. The, 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 where I was going when I named like the, the allies, the enemies, and the people on the fence, and why the people on the fence are the majority, and they usually follow who gives the most superior rhetoric, is because of this. If you want to be involved in promoting and popularizing free markets and getting people to buy in, then you got to know when you're winning. It's okay to criticize and, and, and talk about the things you're afraid of, but that can't be all that you do. You have to know how to look into a sea of confusion and find the one to two elements of victory that you have and then use that as a talking point to other people and say, hey, look, here is one small tiny example of what it could look like for the market to compel business owners to find a way to make you happy in a world where everybody's angry at the fact that they're trying to make you happy. Look at Uber try so hard, black people, to bend over backwards to make you happy. You're not even impressed by it. White people are, are furious at them and they keep trying. That's what markets do. You don't have to agree with anybody's position, but markets do that so much better than central planning. 
Markets don't have, I mean, businesses don't have the luxury of looking at their angry customers and saying, you don't appreciate how hard it is to do my job. I think you were hallucinating when you said that there is a problem, right? That's, that's what government <laughs> do to you. Like the DMV is never going to talk to you like Uber. I'd rather have Uber saying black people, okay, uh, we're so sorry, it's scared. I'd rather have that than what the DMV does. They're going to talk to you how they want to talk to you no matter what, because they already got your money, yep. you know? And, yep. and so I, what, what I want capitalists to do is you don't have to ignore the things that make you mad, but, but understand that some of these things that are happening, some of them are victories and they're great examples of how markets can solve problems. And in addition to your complaining, in addition to you being afraid of socialism, also talk about that because the way that you sell markets is by presenting people with illustrations for how markets can solve problems that they think government's necessary for. I, I love when you said, you got to recognize when you're winning. I thought of two things right away. One, one was just a funny little, uh, like when you're watching a sports game, especially if you're watching something where the referees are a lot more loosey-goosey about rules like a high school game. And I'm sure you've seen this phenomenon where one team is just crushing the other team. And the game's already over. They're up by 30 points. There's 10 minutes left. There's no way it's going to come back. And one of the guys on the winning team is getting really mad and complaining when the refs are starting to go easy on the losing team, just out of compassion, like, just let them have it, you know? And the guy's like, no, they're wrong. They're wrong. It's like, dude, recognize when you're winning, okay? Just like, <laughs> this means, the fact that the refs are going easy on them, it means you're winning, okay? Um, yeah, I'm all, I'm, it's always the, the fights that break out, like, with a minute left in a game, with one team up by 20 points. And you know players on both teams are going to get suspended for like two games. It's so pointless, yeah. Um, but it also made me think of like the famous John Hasness essay, The Obviousness of Anarchy, where he's got a, I mean, the, the repeat line over and over in there is, look around, right? Like people are like, I don't understand. How would, you know, things work without government? Look around. And, and not being able to see when you're winning there's this weird like magical like enchantment that happens when you follow social media, news media, and you just see the things that are highlighted and the pictures you're shown and whatever. And like your idea of this is what's going on in the world, right? Uh, a bunch of protesters burning down buildings and a bunch of companies saying, oh my gosh, we're so scared of you here, right? That's the picture you're going to get. But Hasness's phrase, look around and see where the market, where freedom is actually winning. And, and it's so weird because like I go to the grocery store here and it's like, I would say more than ever. And, and I, I've, always found, uh, I've always found far more amicable relations between blacks and whites here in the South than I have in most other places. But right now I've noticed more than ever when I go to the grocery store, I feel like everybody, is being way nicer to everybody else. White people are being really nice to me. Black people are being really nice to me and vice versa. Everybody that passed each other, they're making a point. They're going out of their way to smile and be like, how are you? How are you? And it's like, there's this, and like the, the, comp, the uh, people working at the stores are like really going out of their way. They're trying to work really hard. And it's like, when you, when you look around and you see the marketplace, the culture nearby, like, most the predominant experience is people are saying, we want civility. We want, you know, like we want to figure out what it is that is 
off base and we want to see if we can fix it somehow. We don't know what that is. It's a discovery process, but like I see way more of the market sort of winning than losing, but you just, you just see that one, that one fraudulent blow of the whistle where the guy calls you for a foul that wasn't real because he just feels bad for the guy that's losing and you get incensed about it instead of looking at the scoreboard and being like, Hey, what, you know, like we, we're winning. Okay. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like there's just so much that I feel like is positive. And my wife actually, um, I hope she won't get mad that I'm sharing this, but this morning when I first sat down in my office, she came up to, to get something and then she went back down and I said, I said, were you crying? Your, your eyes looked red. She said, yeah, I did. I, I said, what, what's wrong? She said, no, nothing's wrong. It's good. She said, I just, I just happened to get on Facebook and I saw somebody shared something that was like, hey, for anybody that needs to see good news. And she was like, it was just this whole like montage of like, black people helping a white store owner clean up his store, white people helping black people. And just like, no, no virtue signaling, just normal acts of humanity where people recognizing the moment is shitty and let's like not be shitty to each other. And let's just, and, and she was like, I just needed to see that. And I thought, I guarantee you that is happening 10 times more at minimum than the horrible stuff that you're seeing. There's way more of that winning going on than the horrible stuff that you're seeing. It's like this when a hurricane hits. If you're on the ground in a place that's gotten hit by a storm and you go walk neighborhoods, you see acts of kindness like crazy. And then what shows up on the news? Somebody broke a storefront and took advantage of the fact that the power was out and they looted it. You know, oh, somebody was trying, you know what I mean? And you're like, oh, look at humanity. But like, don't let that be your reality. Look around and see that you're actually winning, you know? Yeah, and, and, and you know that story about the guy breaking in the store, it, it wouldn't make for interesting news that we talk about if it wasn't exceptionally rare compared to the number of people that respect private property, right? Yeah. Um, the hurricane itself is news because it's exceptionally rare compared to all the boring days where we have weather that's essentially harmless, you know? Um, and, and you've got to remember that. Also, what I love about that video that, that um, Heather watched is it's a good reminder of the importance of, of getting on the ground and talking with real people in the real world because the people in your neighborhood and most of the people you will ever interact with in life don't have any control over what's getting played on the news. And, and, and you got a lot of people making sweeping statements about groups of people, whether you define it ethnically, politically, geographically, and they don't even have more than five friends in any of those demographics. It's like, where are you getting this from? Like, I'm sorry, you can love and watch whoever you love and watch, but you gotta talk with real people, man, because the incentives for the news talking about certain people and groups, it's entirely different than what you get when you walk into the barbershop, the grocery store, you go to the gym, whatever it may be. And, and, and I think with us all being inside and we're getting everything now from social media and from television, it's like our defenses are down. Like nature has given us a natural built-in defense mechanism for minimizing misinformation and deception. It's engagement with real people. And when you take that away from people, man, when you, when you, when you restrict people's engagement with one another, it's so much easier to engineer behavior. It's so much easier to, to deceive people. And there's a lot of that that's happening right now. And, and, and somebody might be listening to, to, to your story about like remembering the positive, it's easy to dismiss that as like, yeah, but there's still a bunch of negative stuff going on. 
but you can do both at the same time. Mm -hmm. And the reason why you have to practice remembering the positive is because the only way to achieve progress is you've got to identify what you're doing right, no matter how small and weak and fragile it is. And then you got to ask, how can I build on that? Because the best ideas in their embryonic stage are always fragile. They're always easy to make fun of, but you don't get sturdy, scalable, great ideas unless you invest in them when they're in that weak stage and say, I'm doing this thing right and I'm just going to invest in it more and more and more and more. So let's, let's talk specifically about the, the Uber Eats example that you just shared. I'm curious, do you, yeah. do you look at that and say, oh, this is cool because it's a great example of the dynamic process of the market and it's fun to see companies try to figure this out and we'll see what happens sort of dispassionately. Or do you look at it and say, oh my God, I think that's probably a mistake by Uber Eats and they're going to get punished. Or do you look at it and say, <laughs> hell yeah, all right, this is awesome. I love this. This is progress. Do you know what I mean? Or do you just not care at all? <laughs> I'm somewhere in between two and three. There's a part of me that's like, ooh, this is super interesting. I know people are going to be mad, and I, and I, and I want to see what's going to happen, right? Yeah. Is this going to work? Because you know they're trying. You know they're trying, but we, we haven't seen an effort like this before. And because obviously we're, we're, we're in a historically unprecedented situation. It's not just the, the recent protests and riots but it's also the context within which the nation is sorting this all out. We're sorting it out within the, within the context of like a major recession and economic yeah, the, lockdown. I mean, the whole country was locked in their house and told you are now criminals until we say you are free. Uh, and who knows, everyone could die and the economy is destroyed. And we're going to just sort of print money and send you checks until further notice. And like, everyone's like, what's going on? And then you have oh my gosh, explosive riots that are out of everyone's control, right? Like it is, it is the worst possible environment to try to think clearly about things. You know what I mean? Yeah, like one of the toughest discussions we could be having right now was dropped right in the middle of people being like, afraid they're going to die, afraid <laughs> that there's like a mass global conspiracy, like all of this crazy stuff that's happening. So it's hard and it's, hard to, it's, it's, it's extra hard to talk about. But yeah, that, that's actually, that's actually should be pointed out that even though we're talking about market responses to this in a market that's free-ish, not all the way free, what we're talking about in the first place is not a natural market phenomenon, right? So it's like the market didn't create the problem, but the market's doing a pretty damn good job of responding compared to the other options. So that should, be, that should just be mentioned first, but go ahead. Yeah, yeah. I, you know, so I, I get excited about it and you can, you can call me pessimist on this, but I, when I look at this stuff, the fact that the fact that I know a lot of it is, is, is not done like sincerely or with any kind of deep love, it, it makes me respect and appreciate the power of markets more. It, it, it makes me feel like, man, this is great. Like, well, I don't truly hope this, but wouldn't it be crazy if it was like, hey, the Uber CEO is racist and actually hates black people, but he was like the main guy. We're going to name this episode. We're going to name this episode. Why TK hopes that Uber CEO is a racist. <laughs> but that, but that makes you feel less. It makes you feel more empowered that like, hey, even people who are full of shit who may not actually believe it, they're going to try to serve me because that's what capitalism does. Yeah, okay, so here's something interesting about racism. There, 
there are certain ideas that I think people look at as being the conceptual property of specific groups. And so, for instance, um, you could say, I think racism, belief that racism exists, that's kind of seen as like the conceptual property of the left. And if you're not part of the left, you can't buy into that idea because you're making your political opponents richer, right? Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. And that's kind of how it's seen, right? And so to even say something like, yeah, I think racism exists. And by the way, uh, when it comes to arguments against the existence of systemic racism, I've listened to hours of Coleman Hughes, hours of John McWhorter, hours of Larry Elder. I've even listened to hours of Candace Owens, who I think is mostly a specialist in like triggering people. You know, hours of people like Brandon Tatum, hours of Thomas Sowell, hours of Walter Williams. I've listened, Glenn, Glenn Lowry, I've listened to a lot of these arguments, okay? And, and, I, and, and, and I continue to listen. But I believe that racism does exist in this country. And I also believe that the less you acknowledge the problem, the less you will be inclined to celebrate a brilliant solution you have to the problem. And so this could be another reason why many capitalists don't feel excited about what I'm seeing, because most of them don't even believe in the existence of the problem that I think the free market is in the middle well, of trying and, to solve. And I, think, and I think for a lot of people, you know, it's like when you're, uh, I've had this kind of discussion before, like if you're talking with like a really staunch atheist and you're not even talking about religion and you're just like, hey, like what is consciousness? And immediately they start to get real scared and shut things down because in their mind, if they admit anything other than a physical brain in there, then they think they're going to be sitting in church with you in like five minutes, right? Like, okay, wait, I have to say this. So I, th I think people are scared of that. I think people are like, I think a lot of people are like, if you define it tightly enough and promise me and sign a contract that says you will not then force me to believe a bunch of additional stuff about the solutions and whatever, then I will, in a very qualified way, I will admit that racism exists. I think a lot of people actually think it exists, but saying that word, they're like, oh God, I know where this is going because I know what you're going to do with that word. I know what you're going to try to do, or they think they know, right? I, think, I, think it, I don't think it's so much. I think there are very few people who genuinely think that racism does not exist um, in any way. Uh, now, maybe some people think that it's like, you know, reverse racism or whatever, but I think most people believe it exists, but I don't think they're willing to use the term because the particular way in which it is sort of owned by, you know, whatever, the left liberal type people or whatever, that's what's scary to people. They're afraid to be led down that path. And so they're afraid of discussing it as a standalone thing because they feel like it comes attached with a bunch of stuff that they're scared of. You know what I mean? And, yeah, and, and much of it they're rightfully scared of. I'm, I'm not saying to, to like mock them entirely. Yeah, I think something that proves you right is, is the fact that when, when you really look at it, both sides, at least of the political spectrum, and I know I'm speaking about a lot of things in terms of left versus right, but like both sides believe in the existence of racism. They just think it's the other side. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> because sure. people sure. on the right are always talking yeah. about race Every, too. They're like, everybody the believes... Somebody is racist. You know what I mean? Um, and, and, and we should make that disclaimer that both of us are sort of loosely talking about left, right, conservative, liberal. Both of us believe that that is 
from an ideological standpoint, complete bullshit. There's like no consistency if you go back long enough, the people that use those labels. But we're referring just in the cultural moment when most people say the words what they think of. That's what yeah. we're talking We're basically granting that common assumption, even though it's like philosophically completely incoherent, inconsistent. It's just each of them are just an ever-changing bundle of biases that get changed with the mood. And as long as they can keep distinction from each other, that's all that really matters. It's, it's, it's sort of yeah. bankrupt in terms of logic and, and philosophy and frankly, morality, but it's useful as a term of describing large camps of people that see themselves attached to one of those. Yeah. Hey, so I would, I want to give you an illustration for how, how I think a lot of capitalists are reacting to what I'm talking about and, and maybe a way to think about the, the, the beauty and value of what you have. And I shouldn't say capitalist. That's a loaded term. Free markets. We can market use it. I, I, li I like that uh, some of the early libertarian cats embraced it. It was used as an insult, I think, by, by Marx first. But uh, I, I still like the term. Yeah. Okay. So imagine if you had um, what I'll call a systemic conflict resolution device. Innovative piece of technology. And it was similar to like men in black, you know, where they pulled out that device and they could like point it at you and, and you know, push the button, the, the bright light flashes and whatever it was you heard previously, you forgot what you're saying or whatever. Okay, so I have a systemic conflict resolution device and I can point it at any problem and I push that button, it flashes a light and the problem goes away. The problem gets solved. So let's say I have that. And I'm in the business of selling the systemic conflict resolution device. And uh, the first guy comes up to me and he says, hey, look, I got a problem that's not really systemic, you know, but me and my wife, we're getting into stupid arguments all the time. You think your device can help me out? I'm like, yeah, man, you know, we call it the systemic conflict resolution device, but it actually can work for anything. Oh, thank you so much, you know, and, and I sell him the device. Another guy comes along and says, hey, I'm really, I'm really, uh, you know, troubled about the problem of poverty in Haiti. Can that help? I'd be like, oh, yeah, lots of things going on there. Here you go, man, sell it. And then there's a black guy in the U.S. and he's like, hey, man, I'm mad at systemic racism. And I say, systemic racism doesn't exist. In fact, you're, you're being a victim. And you're, you know, you're being a victim. White people are not responsible for your problems. You need to pull up your pants and talk straight, learn how to speak straight English, and stop killing your own people. Where were you in Chicago? Where were you when people were killing each other in Chicago? Blah, blah, blah. It's like, oh my gosh, what are you doing? What are you doing? You do not even have to go there. You have a freaking systemic conflict res resolution device. Give it to the guy. But it, it, it's almost like people who have People who have the solution to a problem are so busy debating with their customers about the existence of the problem itself because they think their customers are hallucinating. Doesn't even matter if they're hallucinating. That's, that's what the free market is always saying to us. The free market is always saying, hey, Isaac, I don't care if your hypothesis about why your server at the restaurant treated you like crap the other day. I just want to make you happy, dude. Like maybe your hypothesis is correct. Maybe it's not. Who knows? I just want to make you happy, dude. That's the systemic conflict resolution device that is the free market. And we suck at selling it when we spend all our time debating people who have problems about the existence of their problem. Talk about the thing you're selling and how we no, can apply to anything. I think, I think you got to one of the reasons why it's so uh, hard and so ineffective because you said, sell it to your customers. I think a big problem is people who are advocating free markets are largely doing it either just as like a activity for fun or 
a nonprofit organization that is given money to go and evangelize. They don't have customers. So they don't win directly. They don't experience a direct financial incentive to convince somebody that we can solve your problem. They don't profit when they solve that problem in a, in a direct way. Now they may have get psychic profit from seeing people agree with them. Um, but I think that that is a much, in, much more complicated and inferior feedback loop than money profit because money profit distills so much information into such a quantifiable and, and immediate uh, package. It's, it's information wrapped in incentives, right? And so anywhere where you can turn yourself into an entrepreneur and turn your ideas into a business, you're going to be better at it. You're going to be better at it, right? If you can, I mean, even some of the people that you named that you disagree with, they may not be selling the, the solution. You know, they're not selling free markets uh, all the time. Not all of them. Some of those are like Thomas Sowell and whatever, but like they're selling a different product to a yeah. different customer. And if, yeah. if they're doing it, if they're selling books or trying to get sponsorships on a podcast, they're going to learn how to please that customer really well. Now, whoever your customer is and whatever you're trying to sell to them, I think it always helps if you can, if you can not make that a metaphor but make it a reality. Actually have them be a paying customer and actually sell them something that you profit from if they buy, if you can convince them. That makes the feedback loop so much tighter and it makes people so much more effective. Like I've, I've seen so many times, I mean, I came from the nonprofit world myself, but like people who come from a nonprofit background they, and they come in and they start working in a for-profit and they think they're really good at marketing and they're terrible at marketing most of the time. Um, for at least for a while, they can learn it like pretty quickly if they, if they've got the, you know, the ability, but because the incentive structure is so different. And so that's where I think like getting creative and it's never been easier, get out in the market and like, see if you can actually literally sell your ideas in some embodied form as a product, as a service, you know, um, it's not the only way it's not like you can't have discussion that's not tied to a business model. But I think there's something magical that happens when you do. Yeah. And, and you know, I, I think when, when you have to, when you're in a sales position and you've got to get someone to buy into something in order to survive, you learn how to talk to people differently, especially when they're angry. And I think a lot of people who haven't worked in sales, they kind of have this idea that, oh, sales is being deceptive. It's, it's one of the number one objections when, when younger people are considering a career in sales. They, they don't express it about any other career. They don't say, well, I'm concerned about being a banker because I don't want to be involved with, you know, like manipulating. People don't say that about marketing, about being a banker. But when it comes to sales, everyone's immediate concern is, well, I want to make sure I'm not doing anything dishonest, right? I, I want to make sure that I actually believe in the product. So we have this hang up about sales, but when you actually work in sales, you understand that the truth can be told in an almost infinite variety of ways. People who don't have that experience, they tend to equate telling the truth with talking how I naturally talk when I'm not incentivized to actually persuade someone, mm -hmm. right? And so when you ask people or when you, when you challenge people to explain things in a more marketable way, it almost feels like you're lying to yourself because you've never been incentivized to tell the truth in other ways. Um, but when you, when you sell, you have to learn how to tell a story that you believe in in a way that resonates with somebody that has different priorities and different values than you. And that's a skill that's very hard to get right. And I think a lot of people who, you know, champion free markets, they're either preaching to the choir 
an audience that doesn't challenge them in that way, or they're selling books, selling tickets, selling views by shouting at people that they oppose. But that's really valuable too, because the choir likes to see that. The choir likes to see you take down your enemies when your enemies get triggered and, and they comment like, ah, you made me mad. But like, you know, Candace Owens is winning when she makes people upset and then like a thousand people retweet it and go, she's an idiot. Like she just won because that is what she's selling, right? Like she doesn't need you to be like, oh wow, you opened my mind to capitalism. Like, no, just like retweet her stuff a thousand times and, and she's winning, you know? And, and so a lot of people that are talking about free markets, they're talking about it in a context where winning is defined in a way that really has nothing to do with getting those people that are on the fence and have questions and concerns about capitalism to see how it can address the particular set of problems that they're worried about. And I think that's a challenge that's worth, worth taking on. So what are you selling, man? What do you want people to buy from you? Literally or metaphorically? Yeah. I want people to buy into the idea that right here, right now, not, not when someone gets into office or when someone gets out of office or when someone gets elected, right here, right now, you have the permission and the power to be the predominant creative force in your own life. I'm selling the idea that you simply cannot afford to be the kind of person who waits until the world is free. Freedom will always take place against a backdrop of resistance. And freedom is something that you have to choose to fight for like hell right here, right now. And you got to take every bit of it that you can, and you've got to try to get more. I think about um, in, in Frederick Douglass' story, he talked about how his, his slave master, he, uh, he convinced him to let him you know, go out and, and, and make some money, and then he would you know, bring it back to him. And at one point, the slave master got so pleased with him that he gave him a little change. And Frederick Douglass said, he thought that by giving me that change, that he would inspire me to work hard for him. But that was his biggest mistake. The moment he gave me that change, he made me wonder what it would be like to have the whole amount. And from that day on, I began to put my plan into motion for how bit by bit I would, I would take more and more of my money, my master's money from him until I had it all, right? What, what Frederick Douglass didn't say is the fact that I'm a slave and the fact that he's already screwing me over is a reason for me to do nothing other than just be mad. He says, nope, I'm putting into effect a plan that's going to allow me to get the whole of it. And he was willing to put his life on the line. And I think that's how freedom works. You have to take whatever it is you have, even if it's small, celebrate the hell out of it, appreciate the hell out of it, and then create a plan for increasing that amount by whatever means you can. You know, like that, that's what I'm selling, man. I'm, I'm, selling, I'm selling individual freedom. You know, my mission statement is, I don't wanna merely create a world where um, everyone feels free. I wanna create individuals who can figure out how to live freely in any kind of society. Man, I, I literally teed you up to like get more subscribers to your, YouTube channel or to something and you just instead you just had to sell the the raw I just give away the ideas for free you know what I mean what what, <laughs> what is it is it revolution of one 
is that the place where you're you're building your stuff right now? Yep, yep. I'm the host of the podcast, Revolution of One. Go check me out at feed.org slash rev1. All my links, all my social media stuff, everything that I'm doing, you can find it right there on the page. You ain't got to even work for it. Hey man, and you've been, you've been on fire problem. too. You've been, you've been producing all kinds of great stuff. And I, um, I voxed you and I'm going to just confront you right here. You, <laughs> I voxed you and said, hey, you know, half, half condescendingly, half legitimate congratulatory. I'm like, Hey man, I am genuinely excited for you that you surpassed me in Twitter followers. And then you didn't respond. I saw that you read it, but you didn't, you didn't even like it. And you like everything on Twitter and, or on Voxer. So then I like, was like, no, nah, I'm like half joking, but seriously, it's pretty cool to see your audience grow and you didn't respond to any of that. So then I like leave you a message, like a broader message about like building your brand and all this stuff. And you don't respond to that. And I'm like, shit, dude. So then I go on to Twitter and I'm like, hey, I like make a joke. It's cool to see TK surpass me in Twitter followers. It's just like when Brett Favre graciously handed off the reins. I don't know if it's Rogers. my head or not, but it looks like you froze. Did you lose me? Oh, you're back. Okay. Anyway. And uh, you didn't you didn't respond to that on Twitter either. So I'm a little worried that you got offended that I would even compare our Twitter following. So I, I figured we would just do a public confrontation, an airing of grievances. Are are we okay, man? Yeah, it, it's like, do you remember that story of how Larry Bird was just like lighting it up one game, and uh, and they put a white guy on him to guard him, and he was insulted. He was so mad. <laughs> That's how I feel. I'm like, what? You compare my Twitter followers? <laughs> You're like, how dare you? How dare you insult me? That's <laughs> like, uh, I was playing the part of uh, Rajah Bell when he, he was guarding Kobe and he was like going on the press conference about how like, hey, Kobe, you know, did pretty well considering I was guarding him, you know, and Kobe was like, who is that kid? I don't know that kid. Um, so you just decided to keep your power by not acknowledging uh, my my uh my comment anything hey, else man, you want to talk about man the, the way i look at it man we just out here doing our thing you know what i mean we just out here doing our thing <laughs> we gotta i gotta think i'm trying to create an actual database of all of the ways to describe pursuing success it's like you have so many cool like black culture like like uh say, uh take care of your chickens is that was that what it was stacking, <laughs> stacking your bread. chips making paper uh i don't know there's so many well, well, now we got, we got a stack of sats too. Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Stacking sats. Yeah. Although that one is like, I don't know. I just, I found it insufferable because of the, the Twitter Bitcoin cultists that use it. Like it's kind of like, <laughs> oh, when I hear it, I get all triggered. Is that it, man? Are we just going to awkwardly trail off? Never awkward, man. It's, it's been good, dude. This is fun. Hey man, it's never awkward when we get together, is it buddy? <laughs> <laughs> let's do it again brother let's all right we will i have too much fun with these it's too easy i don't need to do any prep i just turn it on and tell you why you're wrong and it's great you know hey man that's that's a rare thing to be able to do well you know what actually if you got a few more minutes this is worth talking about you you left a, a boxer earlier today you were talking about an observation of how even stuff like this you know um right now with people being stuck at home there's kind of almost a, a changing of the guard in terms of uh, influencer culture versus traditional celebrity culture. Let me just stop because you said it well. I, I think it's worth talking about for a minute. Yeah, I don't remember all the stuff I said, but it, but it was kind of like uh, <clears throat> two trends happening at once or maybe three. So, you know, you've already had the trend of like influencers and I hate the word, but I can't think of a better one right now. 
people with YouTube channels, TikTok channels, Twitter, or whatever, following. They've built followings and brands around themselves. And those have been kind of on the rise with all these platforms, obviously, for a long time. But then you have this lockdown, and I think so traditional celebrities have never been less interesting to people. So, like, their new shows and their new movies and stuff are not getting made right now. And there's not, they're not out at their red carpet galas. And so all the traditional celebrity gossip is kind of like, you know, and they're, they're sending weird videos from their home without their makeup on and they look a little bit weirder and more pathetic than normal. And I think in general, if I could invest in the stock traditional celebrities, I would short it right now. Like it's gone way down. People just don't care. Plus you have all the coronavirus news and now all the, the protests and, and, you know, all this news going on. No one cares what like George Clooney ate for lunch right now, right? Less than ever. So you have that happening and then you have people distrusting mainstream news more than ever because it's just like just all over the place with just weird hypocritical stuff. They've been caught fabricating photos and Photoshop, like just absurdly like, ne you know, like negligent fraudulent reporting to, the, to a level that nobody can deny. This is not conspiracy theory stuff anymore. Everybody's like, okay, whatever. Even if they still watch the news, they respect it probably less than ever. Um, well, maybe I've seen some of those things showing that their, their ratings are up, but I think it's because people are watching it, but I don't think they're, they're into it. And then you have the third thing, sort of citizen journalism and citizen opinionators, kind of just individual influencers. They've got an audience that's more available than ever. They're all on TikTok because they're, they're all at home all day, just sitting on their devices. They're more available than ever because they're at home. So they can make more videos. They can do more stuff. And they're giving you stuff that you're not getting anywhere else. You're not getting the normal celebrity stuff. And you're not getting stuff from the news that these people are talking about. And so you have this like huge rise. If I could invest as a group in the stock of like individual influencers, right? Like the TK Coleman's of the world, like anybody with 5,000, 10,000, 20,000 Twitter followers, 10,000, 5,000 YouTube followers, whatever, like as a group, I'm investing in that stock. Cause I think that is like, I've just seen it rise in prominence and I've seen sort of the big cultural conversations of the day being led by kind of self-made celebrities who were not an anchor on CNN or an actor in a Hollywood movie, but they were a guy with a YouTube channel or a podcast. Um, and I just think that's cool. I think the market, and I think there's a lot of differentiation happening in that market too. People are really carving out a bunch of uh, you know, niches and stuff as well. Um, that's been really fun to see. Yeah. You know, I wonder if it's partially because the more, I don't know what to call it, official your brand, like let's say you're George Clooney, the, the more risk there is in doing stuff like this, right? Um, you, you, have to, you have to still be off, kind of on guard a little bit. You can't just be off the cuff and like say what you think, or you, you, you can't just like make a joke about a celebrity. Like, like you and I, we'll talk and we'll like, you know, praise Steph Curry and then, you know, make a joke about LeBron or something like that. You can't really do that if your choice is cloning, right? Yeah, right. You know? Like you might have some, you know, contract to do some collaborative project with LeBron James or his his agent or something, right? Like, yeah. Yeah, and I wonder if people feel they're resonating with the authenticity. If you watch Hotep Jesus, right, the the level of realness, like like you know, that's like he's being who he is, right? You know, he's not putting on, I mean, sure, there may be some putting on an act, but if you watch Hotep Jesus, or if you watch Mike Malice, like these dudes are talking how they talk, 
they're saying what they want to say. You know, when, when, when Mike Malice trolls somebody, or I think he's like the anti-troll, but like when he anti-trolls somebody on Twitter, it's the kind of stuff where if you were like super guarded, you'd be like, oh, I can't say that. My fans will think I'm this, or my agent will send me an email saying, take it easy. And, and maybe people are just kind of bored with that right now. They want something real. But here's my question to you. Do you think we just go back to the way it used to be? Do you think any aspect of how things are happening now sticks? Yeah, I think a lot of aspects stick. Um, some really good, some bad, but I think I'm an optimist. So I see more, more potential for long-term positive, even though I think there's a lot of potential for short-term uh, danger, but mostly just coming from how much people are willing to tolerate when it comes to government um, control of their lives. Um, I'm, I'm, I was surprised by how easy it was for governments to basically take complete control um, because of this Corona thing. And so there's some unknowns there, but in terms of broader economically, culturally, I think there's some really positive things that are, that are not going to sort of fully go back, right? There's all the obvious ones like, more uh, remote work and flexibility in terms of where you live versus where you do business. I think that is largely a, a trend that has been going on anyway and, is, and has been accelerated. And a lot of people who were scared of it have learned that it's not scary. I think the same thing is true of homeschooling. Uh, a lot of people who were scared that it couldn't work spent three months with their kids doing their Zoom classes in the house. And they were like, what? This is it? This is what they're going to school for? Like, this is ridiculous. I, like a lot of people aren't as scared. Like, oh, okay. Like there's a way in which throwing a wrench and forcing people to do things differently can sometimes help people see possibilities that they didn't see before. Mm. Um, that is in no way a justification of throwing the wrench in the first place. I don't mean that at all. But I think that's the, it's a testament to human ingenuity and the human spirit and the way that companies and individuals alike just scramble to say, okay, you're going to reduce the scope of my freedom by like this much. I'm going to immediately find ways to poke holes in that box. How can I still connect with people? How can I still learn? How can I still, and they're going to find all these tools and all these mindsets. I think the thing with celebrity, as we've mentioned, um, I just think there's a lot of understanding that at the end of the day, you, you can't just float downstream and let kind of the system do the work. You are the locus of control. Uh, you yeah. are the center of production and consumption. You are the creative force. I think there's a little bit of that, that some percentage of people have gotten, they've gotten a little bit of a taste of something that they're going to hold on to that I think is beneficial. Yeah. I like that, man. Well, I hope we get back to that world soon, man. You know, it's uh it's crazy hearing the way people talk about work, you know, <laughs> or somebody, you know, like, oh, like, what are you so worried about getting your hair done or getting your nails done or being able to buy your shoes? And it's like, well, what about the people that feed their kids by actually doing hair, by actually well, doing like, or selling shoes, you know? Like, what about just being human? Like, <laughs> right. I like to be comfortable and clean and fresh and look good. And like, I want to go and interact with it. Like, that's called civilization. What do you mean? What am I worried about? That's if there's anything worth holding on to, it's that for God's sake. Yeah, absolutely, man. Absolutely. I, I just did an uh, episode on my Wednesday live stream just about mental health. And one of the things we talked about right now was just like 
man, it, our country's in a, in a pretty precarious place right now with, with, uh, with, with people suffering from things like depression and meaninglessness because they don't have anything to do. And it's not just about like going to watch a movie either. It's like their, their labor, their ability to work, their ability to have human contact. It's, yeah, man. Yeah, I, I don't know about any numbers or anything, but um, I know somebody personally, a good, a good friend of mine, his friend, um, his friend from like college that he, you know, sees every couple of years. Uh, he owned like, like several golf courses and a couple of restaurants. Um, and a couple months into the lockdown and he had a family and everything, he committed suicide mm-hmm. because everything got shut down and he was, you know, owed money to the banks that he couldn't pay unless his businesses were working and every one of his businesses was shut down. And, um, mm-hmm. You know, I know, I know there's a lot of, I know there's a lot of, there's a lot of that. There's a lot of desperation and a lot of, um, you know, just psychological, emotional battles. I mean, humans, humans also need, they need to see other humans' faces to like connect. They need to have human touch. And when you're like, you have to be six feet away, you got to wear a mask. You got to eye your neighbors like they're a disease vector, not a human. There is nothing more detrimental to physical, mental, and emotional health that I can think of. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a quite an insidious uh, thing, really. Whether, whether it's intentionally insidious or not, it's insidious. It has a really, a really um, dehumanizing effect uh, that I find, you know, really, really troubling. Like, to the point where during all this stuff, and now here where I am, it's not, it's not really that that bad anymore. I hardly ever see, you know, people with masks and people are pretty normal, but during the middle of all this stuff, like, you know, I would, I had a, a older neighbor who like, uh, gave my wife a hug and was just like, Oh no, give me a hug. And like, like, I'm not afraid to give you a hug. And it like brought my wife to tears because something that small and normal and human was like an act of courage, you know? Um, man, that just, that's that's a that's a disconcerting feeling. It is, man. It's it's our greatest challenge yet, man. We we in the middle of that. You look like you got bored about five minutes ago. I didn't get bored. <laughs> you said it so seriously. I didn't get bored. I wasn't bored. I wasn't asleep. I was paying attention the whole time. <laughs> I, I, I can recite everything you said to me right now. <laughs> hey, man. This is great to chat. All right, brother. Peace. Peace.